We'll continue in the Gospel of John. We arrive now at chapter 13. Now, depending on the version of the text that you have, you will note that there is various titles you are shown. In the Geneva Bible, you may not see any titles being present. For those who have the New King James Version, in the beginning of the chapter, the first title is given to you in which it states, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. As to then, Jesus identifies his betrayer before verse 18. As to the new commandment being given, according to verse 31. And then Jesus predicts Peter's denial before verse 36. As to the King James Version, you may be seeing here that there is a third Passover. After which, then, there is a new uh, definition under our title before verse number two, which indicates the Last Supper, and it will not continue from there. But the title that I feel that it's given a more appropriate context to this chapter is in the New American Standard Bible. That is not to say one version is better than the other, but this I believe, gives proper context to describe the entire chapter. So it brings harmony from verse 1 on to the last verse, at which it ends at verse 38. Today we will now be reading and taking on our exposition with verses 1 through 17, because I feel it is proper that when Pastor Jason returns, to discuss in particular the Lord's Supper, verses 18 on to verse 30 gives a better proper context. All that being said, I will now read John 13, 1 through 17. Here now the reading of God's holy word. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid his garment aside. And taking his towel, he guarded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him and said, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew the one who was going to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garment and reclined at the table again. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash the one one another's feet. For I give you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Shall I now look to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day, Lord, that you've given us, Lord. And as we come to this time and the means of grace in which the congregation is hearing your word being preached, may be a time of self-reflection. Having our faculties intact and being here today, Lord, we thank you for such loving mercies. So in this, Lord, at this present time, be with us. Be first with your servant as he feed and teach your sheep, but be with your congregation so that they may have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word. For in this we see the example that the Messiah has given in showing of servitude and what has shown to his disciples and the disciples will show to us. In Christ's most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, I went through that lovely commercial in the beginning only because it's proper. I think context is very, very necessary when it comes to approaching scripture. I cannot stress enough. When we go through these studies and have to read commentaries and look at the inner, liter inner linear translation of the Greek text, and have to go back and make comparisons of Septuagint and make sure and verify that our hermeneutics is proper and done. There's a lot that goes into a lot of these sermons. So I can assure you our work is not slack. But all this being said, it's our job to make this capital for you. And the reason why I went through that commercial, a little soliloquy, it was to show you that in the context of this chapter, the whole chapter is discussing the Lord's Supper. Now, if you are familiar with the Synoptic Gospels, in particular the chapter of the Lord's Supper, and seen the Synoptic Gospels is Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. And in the institution of the Lord's Supper, it's considerate of how consistent those books are. For example, in Matthew 26, 17, Mark 14, 12, and Luke 22.7. It was considered that the Passover, or in this institution of the Lord's Supper being instituted, it was done on the first day of unleavened bread. And the disciples then came to the master, given in quote, the time of preparation. They proclaimed a question. Where will you have us prepare for you to eat of the Passover? Now, only by verse 8 in Luke do we see that there was not a question posed, but the master commanded them to prepare a place. So given even though the narrative is varying, 
The instructions actually are very consistent and concise through all those synoptic gospels. For in this, I read to you only in Matthew 26, 18 through 19, but it's going to be synonymous as you look, as we look at Mark and Luke. The master tells them to go into the city to see a certain man and to state by his vocation, the teacher says, my time is at hand and I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The difference here in how the narrative varied in Mark and in Luke, they were told to follow a man carrying a pitcher of water. And upon meeting the certain man, as in Matthew, Luke is being descriptive in particular that that certain man was the master of the house, of which he resided over the guest bedroom that was in the upper room of the house. Now, what's telling is now when we come back to John 13, we do not hear of them making those arrangements. Does this mean that John is slack in not doing so? Absolutely not. And what's telling is a lot of these commentators are trying to make an emphasis on the difference. This is where details can get you into trouble. Because the emphasis is on the message and on the author that's providing the message. It is here that John is going into more detail of the supper that the synoptic gospels do not. And this is why it's telling that the whole chapter is of the supper. And he even denotes time lapses during that particular evening setting. For even though he speaks by verse 2 and 4, of the supper, he does not go into great detail, especially in particular by verses 21 to 29, but in the 18 through 20 is very important for verses 21. He states when he starts the chapter before the feast of the Passover is a mark to show they were ready to partake, but something happened before they partook. It's not to say that the day was not the same as the first day of the unleavened bread. Did I get lost in the details? He's saying of that evening before they partook of the feast, this act that Jesus is going to portray had been conducted. In fact, he even bookmarks in this first portion by verses 1 through 4. An aspect of before the feast, a portion of during the feast, and then lastly, as he makes by verse 3, after. All this is transpiring of what took place that evening. So to those who are trying to pose the question then, why is John not consistent with the synoptic gospels, I will bring you acutely back to his style. So let us look back at chapter 5 at verse 20. For it reads, For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all the things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, and you will marvel. 
by chapter 3 and verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And here's a conclusion that you may not have thought of by John 10, 17. Therefore, as the Messiah speaks so eloquently, my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. Now, setting this in your purview, if we read John 13, verse 1 again, hear closely. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He's being consistent with his style. And that's why his gospel, especially written by the one whom Jesus loved, is going to give us in-depth detail as to what transpired that night. Now, as we get to verse 2, he does not go into greater detail until verse 21, the Lord's Supper. But by verse number 2, he's making an assertion. That his understanding of how Christ fulfilled the scripture after his ascension is pieced here. What do I mean by this? I mean is that as you notice throughout the scripture, John has given indications of how explaining himself or explaining to the reader and the hearer as to what particular facets of certain events mean. For example, in John 2, where he states, the scripture was fulfilled by Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The Jews took to his, to his father's house as a place of mercantile, a transaction. And what transpired? Because of the passion and zeal he has for his father's home, he drove them out. And they posed a question to him. By what authority do you perform these signs? Does he answer to them in the oblivious? Well, in the obvious, he does not. He states to them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise them up. Now note, during that moment, neither the apostles nor the Jews understood. But what does John write by verse 21? He was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered. Key term here. His disciples remembered what he had said about this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Another emphasis of this instant is seen in John 12, the master's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Again, the scripture was written in the old Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and on the fowl of a donkey. And by verse 16, what transpired? Here again, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but... Here's the time when Jesus was glorified. They then remembered that these things were written about him and that 
they had done these things to him. So therefore, verse number two is not an error, but showed a consistent style of John and proper. He's showing that during this time of the utmost worship that is endued to him, John notes the man who will commit the greatest treason. And is of which, in verse 2, it's the then during the supper that the devil was put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. And note John is using him as the son of Simon. The first time he makes a mention that Judas Iscariot is the son of Simon Iscariot is seen in John 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6 and verse 71. And he states about Judas again in chapter 12. And all consistent, he states he was going to betray him. And again, it's likewise and logical given how John writes his book. Now, nowhere else in the Synoptic Gospels do we see that Judas' father is named. But only in John's Gospel does he denote it. Why is he making that emphasis? Well, he could be showing that Judas is like his earthly father. I mean, he could have learned from his father that by seeing Judas's attitude, especially amongst the 12, he was never concerned about the poor. In chapter 12, by verse 6, it was stated that he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer it. I see it actually more consistent with the way John describes the difference between Light and darkness. How John had described a difference between Mary and Judas. Here, John is showing the difference between Judas and the twelve. Because to be the son of Simon, Iscariot, he did not share a bondage with the earth, with the spiritual father. He was of his earthly father, the devil. Recall in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. And, ha, note this. The desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Again, chapter 13 is not showing a timestamp of what transpired throughout that entire day. We already have the Thanoptic Gospels to provide it. And the apostles and their assistants, especially with Luke and Mark, were not in the same room when they wrote their books. But it was by the Spirit and its harmony shown to us throughout history how we can bring it all together. And through John's writing, he's given us greater detail of what transpired in that supper. We do not need him to speak. In fact, the only time he said it was the evening was twice. He states it in John 6 verse 16. And he will state it and we will see it in John 20 verse 19. But what was the meaning of him even putting the, the timestamp to those days? Well, in John 6, especially in that particular portion in verse 16, Jesus walked on water. And it was a 
a convenient thing to write the evening to provide the reader and the hearer the imagery they need to understand as to what transpired, what took place, and why the apostles reacted the way they did. And as we will see, and not to go too far ahead, when we see in John 20, the Messiah is resurrected and come to see his disciples. Again, it's very important that there's certain reason why words are placed where they are. So, by verse 2, even continuing on here now, as we're going to approach to uh, verse 3, the supper give us clear indication that it did transpire most Lord towards the evening. So, with all this being said, and our setting and understanding being provided, now, let's look in detail of the supper. And what transpired within the supper, given especially the institution of it by verses 21, as, it's going, as the Messiah is going to continue to read, we're going to look at the act that transpired before. And here is the premise to why the act had to be done. By verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and they had come forth from God and was going back to God. Note by verse 4, he got up from the supper, laid aside his garment, taking a towel, and he girded himself. By verse 3, we have the premise to the act of which was to transpire, the master washing of his disciples' feet. And you're going to see the master's answers by verses 7, 8, and 10 is to show true and well. The son knows what the father has tasked him to do. Because by verse 3, the father had given all things into his hand. We saw it the first time. Remember in chapter 3? Here it is reinstituted. But this time is followed by an act. And so in this, unlike the Mary's washing, here the master doing this act is an act to show the doctrine that was to follow. The characters that were involved is also important because of the just position, juxtaposition we're going to see between the two. So, note here, because it's stated how it begins. The master pours in the water into a basin and he washes the disciples' feet. And in this particular statement, you note that Simon who is like and who was among the disciples in John 2 and in John 12 poses the question for where we consider that his master was stooped so low that he is looking down to him instead of him looking up. And Simon states, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the Lord could have answered in the declarative. And obviously, yes, I am. But does he do that? 
No. He takes the doctrine. And in his statement, he states, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Why? Because they were there and they seen everything he did in real time. But they did not understand. And being the master and teacher that he is, he wanted them to understand when the time was meant for them to know. So, you think that Peter was satisfied with the master's response? No, he was not. And can you fault him? That is his teacher. That is the one he looks up to. Never would he imagine his master stoop so low. He states by verse number eight, You shall never wash my feet. But does the master stop washing his feet? No. In fact, given Peter's sense of piety, he corrects him even further. By verse, as verse 8 continues, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Such powerful doctrine is spoken in such small amount of words. You see, the master's willingness to wash at the time and what probably considered in today's view, the exposure of one's feet, especially in their time that was exposed to the elements. They were crusty. They were dirty. They're probably mangled. He would have never thought he would look to wash something so filthy. But what happened here is what John is trying to show. Peter was looking through his fleshly and pietistic eyes. He did not see the understanding of the master's act and willingness to serve. What is also told to us is that we should not be like Peter. When the opportunity is provided that we're given correction in our time when we misbehave, we should accept the judgment that God has provided to us. Because some people do not understand the love of the master. Peter did not understand it at that time. For Peter's piety blinded him to what the emphasis the master was trying to make. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The master's emphasis is this. He's the one who must begin and perform the work in order for us to be pardoned of our sins. He's the one who must begin and perform the work of us to be sanctified. For sanctification cannot be done without justification or the pardon of sins. I'm going to bring to you in your recollection of your history of the Bible, Saul. Saul was kicked off his high horse. 
Saul was blinded by the master as he sat at the right hand of God the Father. And people could not believe that Saul, the main persecutor of the Christians, Galatians 4.29, Philippians 3.4-6, through 6, would be converted. Why? Well, Saul wreaked, wreaked havoc on the church's church. Acts 8.3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison by the authority of the high priest. Anyone who went the way of Christianity, man or woman, were bounded and brought for trial. Acts 9, 1 through 2, then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciple of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked the letters from, from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who was of the way, whether man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what transpired on his journey to Damascus? The master blinds Paul, Saul. And he states to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul states back, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But by this time, though, Jesus has resurrected and ascended. Acts 1, verse 2 even states it to be so. So how can the master say, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting? John 13, verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. And that part of me is given to all believers who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That part of me is given to all believers who understand that he's the only one who can pardon sin. And of which, the emphasis now coming back to John. Peter drew logically given his master's statement. Because then he understood, well, master, if you're going to wash me and your hands are the only things that are clean, please don't stop there. May it be that I am washed whole as the whole man. So Peter states acutely. But what does the master do? He doubles down on the emphasis and then he juxtaposes. For by verse 10 and 11, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. I perform a work in you. As to the dictation of where that work has began, you may not know. I may choose your hands. I may choose your feet. I may wash your head. But the whole man does not to your thought process from your fleshy eyes needs to be washed. If I've already began a work, I will seek it to its completion. And note here, where I begin a work, I complete it. Because he continues, but it's completely clean. And he even states it by giving Peter assurance, he can give us an assurance as well. For to Peter, he says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are cleaned. You have had your part, sins pardoned. Just as the woman who wept as the, as she bathed 
and kissed the Messiah's feet in Luke 7. She would not cease until she heard the words, Your sins are forgiven. Only the Master can give us that assurance that this has transpired. But note here the just position. But not all of you are clean. For by verse 11, he knew the one who was going to betray him. And for this reason, he state, not all of you are clean. You see, as, ver as with verse number two, he is speaking of Judas. But the master states it, but they don't understand at that time. That it was Judas who was going to betray him. But if there's a notation to the apostles that's being made there, is there a notation to us? Especially the emphasis is on the pardoning of sins and the spiritual cleansing that comes with the washing from the master. Well, the message to us is we may partake of the benefits of the kingdom. We may have partaken by baptism, whether we were a baby or quote unquote made a false Proclamation of faith. We may partake of the Lord's Supper, even heeding of the warnings that come with it. We took it to our damnation. We could sit here and witness the other means of grace. We could sit here and close our eyes as the pastor makes his prayers. We could sit here and hear the reading and preaching of the word, which are supposed to be tools to the sanctification of a believer. And yet, Sit here and be absolutely wicked and not believe. You see, this is the adage that John is making here with the juxtaposition between Peter and Judas. The master, by verse 12, washed all the disciples' feet. But one was not told he was clean. One was not told that his sins were parted. One was not given the admiration and the joy that comes with being a Christian. So then, after washing their feet and taking his garment and reclining the table again, the Lord begins his discourse. And to this discourse, he now explains to them what they are to understand of this act. And what's interesting is he posed the question and confirms to them their thinking and understanding of him. For by verse 13, he states, You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. But do you know what I've done to you? If I then... By verse 14, the Lord and teacher washed your feet. You all, you all also ought to wash one another's feet. The Lord shares to the disciples and preparation of take and having them take hold of the new administration that the fellow apostles should look to each other as well for guidance. Do not be prideful. Do not think you above one another. As Peter would have assumed that his master would have thought before his master stooped so low to wash his feet. 
As he notes, as teacher and master teach the disciples, he performed this act as a semblance and emphasis on the servitude that leadership leaders should take to serving their their sheep. And what's interesting, especially the servitude as taken, know as the good shepherd, as he brought up in the parable in John 10, he speaks of being the door opener, the doorkeeper. And what's beautiful is that the sheep, his flock, knows his voice. And when he calls, he leads them out. But they don't listen to strangers. They listen to him. Why? Because partaking in the Messiah, he must first start the work and therefore he must finish it. John 13, verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. And if you have no part of me, the sheep will not hear your voice. They will think of you as a stranger and they will not follow you. By verse 15 and 16, he comes to exclaim the example. The master continues, I have given you an example that you should do as I did to you. For he states, and he doubled down, that they want to understand this of the imperative. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is no greater than his master, nor is one greater than the one who sent him. The emphasis is the apostles were sent by him they were chosen by him so do not take to the heavy hand and heavy head that you've seen the Sanhedrin take as they tried to lead the people what have we learned from the Sanhedrin in John's particular style they created unmitigated fear John 7 12 13 there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning Jesus. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. John 12, 41-43 These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that he they will be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The Sanhedrin also created unholy divisions. John 9. The blind man was healed. And when he was healed, he was reviled. John 9.28. His parents were called to give an account. John 9.18 And when they answered, they answered in fear. John 9.20-23 The Sanhedrin had malice against the Holy Spirit. John 11.47-53 Even with the conspiracy to kill him and the innocent. John 12.10-11 I find it very telling the just position that John is using in his gospel to speak about the difference amongst the 12. All 12 partook 
of the and witness the miracles at bay. But not, but only one did not believe. In fact, you can even argue too, but he got a chance to repent when he got a chance to see the Messiah that evening. Earlier, I brought you the conditions and statements in which John is making consistent with his gospel and the difference that some people suppose the synoptic gospels are not particularly there because John is consistent with his own writing. Of which, when I brought to you those particular notes, notations, they were trying to bring harmony between the text from where we've come from to where we arrived now. So in this, as we now approach to verse 17, I want to again read to you those particular statements. Chapter 5 at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater things than these. Again, chapter 3 verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then lastly, by John 10, 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I laid down my life again that I may take it again. Here in chapter 13, we're going to see this at bay. We've already seen the Father loves the Son and given all things into his hand by the beginning of the chapter. We're going to continue to see in which, for the Father loved the Son and showed him all things that he himself does and will show him greater works than these, is just very much so in the act of which he's taking to watching the disciples' feet. Individuals will look at that act of servitude and in their piety try to mimic the Christ. That was not the story. That's not the emphasis. And you lose, you lose the message the Messiah is trying to convey if you're just looking at what he did. Not paying attention to what he commanded you to do. This chapter and continuing going forward, he's speaking to the apostles. So the reader should be reading and taking in what he commanded the apostles to do. We can take and understand the example that they left us, but that's not what we were told to do. We were told to obey him by believing in him, doing what the law requires of us unto obedience and to be a holy people. Why do I say all this? Because note by verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. In some iterations or versions, especially in the King James, you will note that it will state, If ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. The Greek term here, ma karaius, means of a person experiencing a positive circumstance or happy disposition. 
The same quote of blessedness or happiness is seen as the master speaks in Matthew 5, 3 through 11 and Luke 6, 20 through 22 in regards to the Beatitudes. But note the test. The test of obedience was to the apostles. That was their command. What we can take from it is the message conveyed to show the example that the apostles, the apostles are laying for us. And the doctrine that the Messiah has shared with them, we are now privy to it. That is why, again, John is making light of what transpired in the supper rather than the synoptic gospels that takes about the historical narrative that led to the supper. There was doctrine that John, being moved by the Spirit, wanted us to know and to be privy to. And the act that is being seen with the washing of the feet should not be lost in the details of soap and water. It should be taken from a spiritual aspect of what it means when Christ washes us. We are brought, brought into the family and he is the only one who continue the work of sanctification to us. In fact, the very likelihood that the Pharisees posed him a question in chapter 9 that we are blind also is a note even to them that they were still filthy. The master states by verse 39, I've come into this world for judgment that those who do not see may see and those who may see may be blind. So when they pose him that question, he answers back appropriately. If you were blind, you would have no sin. Because clearly you would need a savior in order to open your eyes. You would need a savior to wash you. But because you claimed, you see, your sin remains. How did Peter take to this adage? Because recall, Peter, in his own statement, wanted to take to his master and be taken back that see his master was stooped so low that he's looking down. Peter learned something that day. But like John 2 and John 12, he could not understand it until he saw the whole work of Christ and his fulfillment and what he was supposed to do after the ascension. So Peter speaks. In particular, in his first letter, by chapter number two, he sees the honor that is in submitting. He tells us to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether 
to a king as in one in authority or to the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. The Messiah spoke to them in setting that I'm leaving you an example. Well, Peter understands it now, especially after the ascension. By verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. By verse 18, he tells servants to be submissive to your masters in all respects. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do right, what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. And note, just as his master was an example for him, Peter is drawing on the Christ to be an example for us all. By verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judged righteously. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But you have now returned to the shepherd, shepherd and guardian of your souls. The master left an example for the apostles to take. At that time, as Peter showed, he did not understand what it was meant. And being a good master, he explained it. But they probably still did not understand what was meant. But as John 2 showed and John 12 showed, after Jesus was glorified, they understood what it was meant. And I'm going to stop here. Because when we get to verses 18 through 30, and especially as John continues the understanding of what transpired during the supper, the Lord says something very profound. My soul is troubled again. What does that mean? What transpired to make his soul troubled? I'll leave Pastor Jason to continue from there. Shall we pray?